It's Wednesday, January 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. How have people's finances held up during the pandemic? In many cases, not well. But many households have been saving, and economists hope that these savings and pent-up demand will push economic growth this year when businesses open back up. 36% of people have saved their stimulus checks, 35% paid down debt, and 29% spent it right away. Harriet Torrey, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, on his first day in office, President Joe Biden submitted an immigration bill, signaling it was a top priority for him. Hoping to avoid missteps from the Obama administration, he put his full wish list in the bill and is willing to break it down piece by piece if necessary, just to get things passed. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, joins us for Biden's immigration plan. Finally, Houston-based company Axiom Space is planning to send private citizens to the International Space Station next year, and on Tuesday, revealed who will be making the historic trip. A former astronaut will serve as commander for the mission, and three wealthy men who each paid $55 million for their ticket. Christian Davenport, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what the citizen astronauts are in for. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The likelihood of you having spent your check or saved it really depends on a couple of factors, things like whether you kept your job and were able to work from home still or, you know, how much money you had before in a, in a savings account. Joining us now is Harriet Torrey, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Harriet. Hi. I wanted to talk about the stimulus checks and, you know, all the stimulus that Congress has been working on to get out to the American people. There's a lot of hopes that this is really going to spur some economic activity. And the last time that checks were sent out to Americans, a lot of them ended up saving that money. And just kind of overall through the pandemic, a lot of people have been saving money for those that are less fortunate. They had to use that money immediately. But there's this kind of pent up wanting to spend a lot of that stuff once things reopen, businesses reopen. So Harriet, tell us a little bit about what we're learning. Historically, in the past few years, Americans have tended to save about 7% of their extra cash. We saw that in the pandemic really spike up in a major way. So in the second quarter of 2020, the saving rate was about 26%, and that sort of eased slightly to 16% in the third quarter. So people were really fearful, and as a result, they were putting more and more money aside as kind of a rainy day fund. So what we saw in the last, when the last stimulus checks went out, we had some surveys that came out afterwards, and it seems that about a third of the money was saved, a third of the stimulus money was saved. Of course, some people did spend that like gradually over the subsequent months, but people did put a lot of this into a savings account rather than get it back out into the economy right away. That doesn't count for everyone, though, because, of course, for many, many people, particularly people who lost their jobs in the first round of lockdowns, this money was essential. You know, they needed right. it to pay their rent and to buy groceries and so on. So the likelihood of you having spent your check or saved it really depends on a couple of factors, things like whether you kept your job and were able to work from home still or, you know, how much money you had before in a, in a savings account. But for many people, they did put this money away because of fears of what was going to happen with COVID, with the economy, with the labor market. What this means now is that there is an enormous amount of money sort of sloshing around in people's savings accounts. And economists are hopeful that now that we're starting to see the vaccine rollout, this money could really power a big pickup in consumer spending once people feel safe enough to get out and about and feel safe enough to spend again. And this economic downturn because of the pandemic is a little different from, you know, let's say a normal recession 
where businesses would be wary to rehire so quickly, things like that. They're thinking that once businesses are starting to open, everybody's going to start rehiring. Everybody's going to get back out there like normal. So they're hoping that the economic return is fast like that. After a recession, companies are very slow to hire back. They want to be cautious about putting people on payroll. And consumers, you know, perhaps they lost income in the recession. So they're also feeling cautious. They don't necessarily, you know, want to go out and spend right away. This recession has been very different because of the government support, not just in the US, but in many economies around the world. People have got money. They've been saving. A lot of these people have been saving money and they have this buffer. So the idea is that when people feel safe enough to and when businesses you know, reopen, they will want to go out and they'll want to do things that they haven't done for the past year, like maybe travel to visit relatives or dine out, have a party, go to a theme park, go on a vacation. And in order to meet that demand, these businesses are going to have to staff up really quickly. So the services sector tends to be quite a high turnover sector anyway. So the hope is that these jobs can come back very quickly. Once the demand starts to return, places like bars and restaurants will quickly need to hire up. That creates more jobs. And that sort of lifts the whole tide in a sense. You spoke to a number of people on how they either spent or saved their last stimulus checks. What did they have to say? For some people, this money has been essential. They haven't been able to save any of it because they've been struggling. Some people don't have jobs. They need the money for food. They need the money for rent. There's no question that they could save any of this money because they're really depending on unemployment and on stimulus to sort of get them through day by day. But for some other people, they're perhaps in a slightly different position. You know, if you still have a job or if you expect to get a job soon or perhaps you've been working for a bit and so you've been able to save a bit of money, people are kind of eyeing that savings and saying, well, you know, maybe I'll need this money, you know, for an unexpected emergency, but maybe I'll be able to actually spend it on something a bit more fun, like a vacation. You know, I did speak to people for the story who are saving up this, um, you know, it's particularly the more recent $600 check. They're looking ahead to the spring and they're sort of hopeful that once they get a vaccine, they're going to be able to go out and maybe spend that money on something enjoyable. (laughs) And I think for a lot of households, particularly people have been working from home for many, many months and Spending has been very skewed because of that. You know, we've seen continued strong spending on goods. So people, you know, stuck at home, people might be buying like fitness equipment so they can work out from home. Perhaps they need a new laptop so that their kids can do remote schooling. But there's only so many times that you can buy a new laptop or a new sports bike or something like that. Services spending is slightly different in nature because it previously it was something that you would do like maybe once a week you would go to the movies or once a week you would go out for dinner. Of course, you're not going to be able to like make up for all the dinners that you missed, but maybe... <laughs> Once you feel safe enough to get out after you're vaccinated, you might be really looking forward to going back and and having those dinners again and maybe spending on that instead of spending on other, you know, durable goods items that you've been buying during the pandemic. So there is this like interesting mix of spending that we've seen during the pandemic. And there's been very suppressed demand for services, partly because people just haven't been able to spend like in a lot of states, you know, non-essential businesses are either limited in capacity or they're shut down. So, you know, once people are able to get out there and do things again, I think there is a lot of pent up demand for particular types of services. Harriet Torrey, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. What they're really looking at is dreamers, you know, the young immigrants that came when they were children who are here, not of their own doing, trying to get them a legal path to citizenship. Joining us now is Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. 
Thanks for joining us, Anita. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about President Joe Biden's immigration plan. On his first day in office, he put out a plan that basically put his whole wish list on paper. And as we know, comprehensive immigration reform has always been very elusive. But he's signaling that this is a top priority for him. And he's also saying that he's not unwilling to maybe do it piece by piece, which a lot of times senators, House members want to tackle things in portions and not do the whole comprehensive immigration way. So, Anita, tell us what we're learning about Joe Biden's immigration plan. As you mentioned, he did talk about this on the campaign trail a lot. and He did have sort of a flurry of executive actions and agency actions right at the beginning of his term last week. And he introduced this huge bill. And as you mentioned, President Bush, President Obama, President Trump all talked about a comprehensive plan and just couldn't get there. It's so incredibly tough on this issue. So what we're learning is that Democrats are talking with some Republicans, talking on the Hill, about sort of breaking things up into different pieces. What they're really looking at is dreamers, you know, the young immigrants that came when they were children who are here not of their own doing trying to get them a legal path to citizenship. And they're looking at some other essential workers, people that are working here. They're already here, but they're not here legally. They're essential workers during coronavirus. So they want to take some of those top priorities and put them into smaller bills or even put them onto the corona recovery bill so it could pass. But the bill that President Biden introduced is has many, many more aspects than just that. So what we're learning is It might not be one big bill. Joe Biden and his team, they're learning from the past mistakes from when they were working with President Obama. When he came in office, they had the House, the Senate and the presidency, but didn't put forth a big immigration bill. And, you know, a lot of people said they wasted time on it. You know, he never really fully went for it. And at least Joe Biden wants to throw it out there all at once and let people work on it, knowing it's going to take a lot of time. People I talked to said that President Obama when he first ran for office, talked a lot about immigration, and they thought he would come in and introduce a bill or introduce a package. But instead, what happened, if people remember, was the economy was in turmoil then. So he really worked on a stimulus, much like what's happening now, was it coronavirus, but some other issues. And then remember, he had this huge push on health care, what we now call Obamacare, was a big priority for him. So he waited until his second term to push comprehensive immigration reform, but he didn't have the Congress then, meaning Democrats weren't controlling both chambers both the House and Senate. And so he just wasn't able to push it through. And I talked to a lot of people in the last couple of days who said, look, we've learned a lesson from what happened last time and we're not going to go down that route this time. It's interesting to note, though, that the White House has not said out loud that they're willing to go through this piecemeal approach. I think it's just something that they are talking behind the scenes about because it's just a realistic approach. They know how tough it's going to be. It's been tough for presidents of both parties, and there's no reason to think this will be any different, even though they're going to have control of both chambers. They have such a narrow control of both the House and Senate that it's still going to be very tough. We're just starting this administration, but the midterms are two years away. And if they don't get something done within then, you know, they lose control of one of the houses of Congress, then it's going to make it a lot more difficult. So really, the clock is ticking already. Even on the first day or the first couple of days, we right. see signals from Republicans that they're going to use this issue. When the bill was introduced, we saw both House Republicans and Senate Republicans calling this sort of a radical amnesty bill. And, you know, are Democrats really going to support this? And we can tell that that is going to be an argument they're going to use for the midterms. What have some of the other members and even immigration advocates been saying 
about all of this. I mean, the attitude is really, if you can get something done at all, at least get that part of it done, you know, going kind of this piece by piece approach. So are they at least appreciating that fact? Do they want to, uh, you know, going with that? Yeah, they've been really happy. So these are, you know, advocates on the left, obviously. They've been very happy with the bill that came out. Even though we don't think it's going to pass, they thought it was a great signal. It really sort of sent a message to everyone that these are the things that President Biden is looking for. And so they thought that was really great. But they also think that the administration has to be realistic. And so they understand why it's going to be peaceful. In fact, I think some of these advocates and some of these people outside of the White House and on Capitol Hill are the ones telling the administration, look, it's just not going to work unless you just take what you can get, whenever you can get it. So if that's a little bit in a coronavirus bill in March and a little bit later, that's fine, because what they don't want to happen is for nothing to happen right. or for this to take three years to happen. And so a lot of people I talked to said this could take one, two, three years to really get something that's a very big bill. And so why not just get what we can? Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm either going to walk on the moon or one of my friends is going to walk on the moon. And both of those scenarios are beyond the, my wildest dreams when I was a kid. Joining us now is Christian Davenport, reporter at The Washington Post and author of The Space Barons. Thanks for joining us, Christian. Sure. Thanks for having me. I always love a cool space story. And on Tuesday, we got to hear from Axiom Space. They're a Houston-based company that's coordinating a trip to space for a uh, spaceflight crew comprised entirely of private citizens. These guys are paying $55 million a ticket for an eight-day stay on the International Space Station. So, Christian, tell us about this space flight and who these guys are. I mean, this would be a historic moment. It's scheduled for early next year, around January 2022. As you mentioned, it would be the first space flight to the International Space Station comprised entirely of private citizens, no professional astronauts in the group, although they will be accompanied by Michael Lopez Alegria, who is a former NASA astronaut. He's now retired, though, and he works for this company, Axiom Space. So you've got Eitan Stibbe, Mark uh, Passi, and uh, Larry Connor, all very wealthy individuals, businessmen, who saw that they could now have the opportunity to fly to space and spend eight days on the International Space Station. Now, this is a new thing for NASA. Back in the 90s and the 2000s, in that time frame, there were a handful of private citizens that flew to the space station on the Russian spacecraft, on the Russian Soyuz, but NASA, they forbade the practice. And in 2019, former NASA administrator Jim Bridenstine reversed that policy, paving the way for private astronauts to fly to the space station. And this will be the first crew. Axiom hopes to fly as many as two of these flights a year, but this would be the very first one. But that's the way we've been trending, right? We've been seeing all these companies developing shuttles, you know, already launching satellites, all this stuff, and also working on sending private citizens into space for some time. You know, everybody knows the names, obviously, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, uh, Jeff Bezos himself, all developing these types of things. And even for Axiom Space, you mentioned they're planning two trips a year, but they're also saying that they want to develop their own space station, something that NASA could use, too. So they're planning really big. 
Let me tell you, it's a great time to be a space reporter. There's so much going on. You mentioned the billionaires. I call them in my, my book, The Space Barons. It's such an exciting time. And people forget that up until last year when SpaceX, Elon Musk, company, which, you know, under contract from NASA to fly not just cargo and crew to the space station, but to fly astronauts to the space station. They had their first mission last year for NASA. That was the first time astronauts flew to the station from United States soil since the space shuttle was retired in 2011. So that was a big deal. They've got a few more missions of flying NASA astronauts, government astronauts, but this too, they're opening up their portfolio to include these private citizens, these tourists. And as you mentioned, Axiom is sort of brokering the deal. They'll do the training, but Axiom itself wants to build their own private space station that ultimately, you know, would replace the International Space Station, which has been up there for 22 years. I mean, it can't be up there forever. They're spending $55 million a ticket. NASA's cost for lodging, I guess, is $35,000 a day per passenger for food storage and communication. You know, NASA's getting their cut, at least for this so they can go to the International Space Station. Are they going to be working there, doing anything? Is it just a vacation for them? How's that going to play out? So they say they want to go up and be industrious and not just be spectators. All three of these guys, I mean, they've got clearly a lot of money. They're philanthropists. They want to partner with local hospitals in their communities, local educational institutions, and do sort of STEM education from up there. Uh, They know, too, that because they're the first crew to do this, there's going to be a lot of attention paid to them. And I I think part of the concern is that they'll be seen as dilettantes. They'll be seen as not belonging and sort of getting in the way of the professional astronauts. And so they want to be taken seriously and do real work on there. I mean, but then again, I mean, who are we kidding? You pay $55 million for a ride to space, right. you should be able to, they're, I'm sure they're going to want to enjoy it and spend some time, you know, doing the somersaults and staring out the window and that sort of thing too. What's been the reaction from these guys about risks? Obviously, you know, astronauts train for so long to go do this. They're going to be working, you know, on the space station and all that. But for these guys, you know, what do they say about the risks? And that's something that I was curious about when I interviewed them and pushed them on that, because I think, you know, a lot of times spaceflight gets romanticized. And the fact of the matter is it is really risky. It is really dangerous. They seem to be aware of that. I mean, particularly Eitan Stibe, he's a former Israeli Air Force fighter pilot who served alongside Israel's very first astronaut, Ilan Ramon, who was killed in the 2003 Challenger disaster when the space shuttle Challenger came apart. I'm sorry, uh, Columbia. So they know the risk and they seem to be well aware of it. But, you know, if you go back in history in the space shuttle, I mean, it was called the shuttle for a reason. They wanted it to be like a normal routine service to space. And uh, NASA had a program where they were looking for private citizens to go and initially opened that up to a teacher, Krista McAuliffe. And when the shuttle uh, Challenger exploded in 1986, they decided to shut down that program and to keep it for professional astronauts only. So I think these guys, they're aware of the history and it's something they're taking seriously, but you never really can be prepared for it. Christian Davenport, reporter at the Washington Post and author of The Space Barons. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.